Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself. It is certainly an unusual speech, a weird speech. Is America safer because of Rocket Man? It was directed at the base, but this is the United Nations. This is not a campaign rally. To crush the loser terrorists. America first meets the United Nations. Major portions of the world are in conflict, and some, in fact, are going to hell. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. You know, I'm freaking out here, Heather. Because Tuesday, President Trump spoke to the United Nations. He called the North Korean ruler Kim Jong-un rocket man, pilloried the Iran deal, threatened, if provoked, to totally destroy North Korea, and defended his America First vision like a man possessed, I would say it was unlike any United Nations speech I've ever heard from a U.S. president. Any United Nations speech I could cite trolling YouTube for the rest of my friggin' life. Let's take a listen to just a little more. I was elected not to take power, but to give power to the American people where it belongs. In foreign affairs, we are renewing this founding principle of sovereignty. Our government's first duty is to its people, to our citizens, to serve their needs, to ensure their safety, to preserve their rights, and to defend their values. As President of the United States, I will always put America first. Just like you, as the leaders of your countries, will always and should always put your countries first. I feel like dragging him into any class I ever took on foreign affairs. I mean, how many American presidents have walked into this chamber? Yes, the world is a mess. It's always been a mess. Yes, people are at each other's throats. That's the way of the world. What you do here is you try to speak in the voice of what we share as human beings from this one shared ground, this one clearing in the woods called the United Nations. Instead, Trump gets to the podium and attacks everyone he can find in the room and attacks his predecessor. And anyone who signed on to the Iranian deal with his predecessor, Barack Obama, many of whom are in the room. What is his purpose here? This is the thing I find myself asking again and again. People arrive at a place like this, arrive at a a moment in their life to saying, this is my goal. This is what I hope to achieve. What is he hoping to achieve here? And is it, is it anything we can discern? Heather, help me here. I am freaking out. What can you find to help us carry on? Well, this is a long history. This, this whole approach to international affairs has a long history. But what happened in the front of the United Nations with President Trump, actually, I think it's important to look at it at the moment that it happened. We know that Donald Trump is in trouble. We know that the news had hit the presses the night before. 
we learned that the team investigating the Trump administration for its connections to Russia before and after the election actually had wiretapped the campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. So when he went into that speech, Donald Trump felt like his back was against the wall. And whenever he feels that, he attacks. He has always felt like the best defense is a good offense. Always. That's what he does. He goes after his opponents. He invents names for them. He attacks anybody who's nearby. And that's exactly what we heard in that speech. You're right. He does a couple of things in that speech that are significant and that are historically significant. First of all is to say he puts America first. But he also did something very interesting, and that is that he tapped into a longstanding fear of the right for the idea that any kind of dialogue, any kind of cooperation with foreign countries by necessity meant that America was being invaded by communists, that somehow that we were going to turn communists, that we were going to be overruled, that we were going to lose the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and everything that made America great simply by being willing to talk and have multilateral commitments to foreign nations. Well, let's get to our guest this week. We're excited to welcome back Susan Glasser, Chief International Affairs Columnist of Politico, host of the podcast, The Global Politica, Susan, welcome back. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you back, Susan. Thank you. What are your big takeaways from this Trump speech in tone and in substance? What, what version of Trump was this? You know, it was it was Trump in full, as they say. Uh, there, you know, there's always a choose your own adventure quality to this presidency, and there was a sort of a choose your own adventure version of. This speech, his debut on the world stage to the United Nations General Assembly, there were many different messages embedded in it. In part, I think that's that's the strategy of the Trump White House is give different audiences different things. The comparison here is obviously to previous American presidents and, and in what context do we view Trump and his presentation there. And I would say you know, on some of the substance, it wasn't radically different than what a hawkish-minded Republican president might say. In other elements, however, it was it was not only different but radically different, both in the style, presentation, and the overall message. The United Nations, of course, was founded uh, by the United States uh, largely and reflects a commitment to an international system of order that that Donald Trump does not seem to share. The United Nations must reform if it is to be an effective partner in confronting threats to sovereignty, security, and prosperity. Too often, the focus of this organization has not been on results, but on bureaucracy and process. In some cases, states that seek to subvert this institution's noble aims have hijacked the very systems that are supposed to advance them. It's inherently just such a dissonant and shocking thing to to see him delivering this message that, you know, aspects of which would be much more believable or plausible in the past coming from the leader of Russia or China or an embattled outcast state than from the United States, which, after all, created this this international order and has, has sort of rigged the system to its benefit. Now here we are complaining about it. No, but it seems as though we're being defined downward. The president seems to want to be a kindred, in a way, to these other nation states and some leaders who are acting dictatorially, carrying forward forcefully, often violently, the national interests of their countries. Who is Trump trying to 
gather as a peer group at a moment like this? Well, look, I mean, you know, I think sometimes we can over-impute motive to President Trump just in the sense that he's not sitting around thinking about, well, gee, what, what school of foreign policy thought will my presidency be remembered in? You know, like what kind of a leader, how does this fit into the history of the United Nations or the, the context of American foreign policy? He's not sitting around just what other presidents have thought, in other well, words. Well, exactly. No, he's not <laughs> thinking about that. You know what he's thinking? He's thinking, gee, that Rocket Man tweet went over really well on Sunday. Yeah. So I'm going to make my aides stick it into my speech on Tuesday. <laughs> That's the, and by the way, that that actually happened. My ratings you know? are fabulous. Well, that's right. He's thinking about his ratings. He's thinking about his domestic political constituency, and I believe that he thinks probably correctly that name checking Kim Jong Un, the leader of North Korea, as as Rocket Man, uh, went over very well with his constituency, appearing to be tough on the world stage, which you know to you might seem bombastic or blustery or inappropriate even, uh, you know, clearly is popular, you know, where you have national security types wringing their hands and worrying about the credibility of our deterrence and whether Trump is making life more difficult for himself and the Pentagon by boxing himself in with lots of tough sounding words that he may not follow through on. I, I, it's not clear to me that the president sees things in those terms. You know, one of the things that I would love to hear more about, Susan, is usually when countries go in front of the United Nations and talk a lot about sovereignty, and he used that word again and again and again, what they are trying to say is, you big countries stay out of our lives. Our success depends on a coalition of strong and independent nations that embrace their sovereignty. And in this case, we have the big country saying that it's going to stand on sovereignty. What's going and, and the other person, of course, who's done that most recently, or maybe not most recently, but done that quite effectively, is, is Vladimir Putin. Why are strong states now insisting on the concept of sovereignty being the centerpiece of their foreign affairs? Sovereignty has become this buzzword, and, and somebody did account and found that Donald Trump invoked that word or variations of it 21 times. The reason that it's become such a buzzword in recent years is it's actually been a way of saying, hey, United States, buzz off. Uh, don't lecture us about our internal affairs. That's up to us to determine. And usually they're talking about human rights. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so it's human rights, but not just that. Transparency, uh, financial systems, corruption, issues like that. All of those things are seen those who assert the primacy of their nation state are basically saying this globalized international rules-based order is not one that we buy into. And we think it's just a way of America imposing itself on us. So imagine how nuts and crazy it is in some ways for America now to be questioning the very system that it built that most other people believe is rigged in our favor. What they're saying, I can imagine, is the only truly sovereign nation in the world is the United States. Correct. <laughs> they do pretty much anything they want. They're powerful times 10 over the next military power. They're the greatest economic power the world has ever seen, twice the size still of China. What is he talking about? I think they're just probably befuddled, including including countries like Venezuela and Iran and others that were singled out in this speech. They must be just sitting there befuddled. 
that's the contradictory nature of it, right? So on the one hand, we hear 21 times, America's sovereign, you're sovereign, don't interfere with us and we won't interfere with you. On the other hand, we have Trump saying, however, there are some sovereign nations that we don't like that we will feel free to intervene with, whether it's North Korea or Iran or Venezuela. Let us listen to a bit of incoherence here. This is uh, from the speech, another excerpt. The problem in Venezuela is not that socialism has been poorly implemented, but that socialism has been faithfully implemented. From the Soviet Union to Cuba to Venezuela, wherever true socialism or communism has been adopted, it has delivered anguish and devastation and failure. Those who preach the tenets of these discredited ideologies only contribute to the continued suffering of the people who live under these cruel systems. Well, isn't it interesting that he, in this speech about internationalism, he goes instantly to Venezuela and to the concept of socialism and communism in Venezuela, which was really a kind of out of the blue. And I, I actually think that's a really interesting moment because he links the idea of American sovereignty to the idea that we have to keep the country and other countries away from communism and socialism. And that idea actually goes right back to the very founding of the UN and to a major fight that Americans had way back in 1953. There was a significant portion of the Republican Party in America who loathed the United Nations and wanted to stand against it. And what they argued was, they actually picked up a much older argument, but what they argued in 1953 was that if America joined an international cooperative body, what would happen is that local laws, sovereign laws, and in the 1950s, what they were really talking about was segregation laws, would be overrun by foreigners who didn't like those laws, and it would destroy American, here's the word, sovereignty. And what would happen is that Americans would lose everything that made them Americans, and they would, in fact, be overtaken by communism, which, of course, is a huge message in the 1950s, I'm sorry, they'd be overtaken by communism or by socialism. Communism is the big thing they're worried about in the 50s. And so somehow we got in the 50s this linkage of sovereignty and communism that it seems to me we might be able to argue Trump was picking up quite deliberately to get us back to the days before the U.N., yeah, what gets down to its heart is a nation of immigrants attempting again to assert its sovereign identity. What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean in this increasingly globalized world? That's at the bottom of so much of what Trump says. I'm going to give voice to the notion of American exceptionalism. We're different. We are somehow identifiable as a people. And that's a big part of what, what Trump carries in so many of these statements. Although, interestingly, a lot of people, by the way, were saying that yesterday's speech was really the definitive end of American exceptionalism as a foreign policy tool. If you talk about sovereignty and you talk about being a sovereign nation and dealing with other nations on the basis of non-interference in their domestic affairs, that's basically saying we're not different than Russia or China. And, you know, when Trump said that at the UN, when he went to Saudi Arabia on his first foreign trip, and remember he got out and he had the, you know, all-male dance party and the Gilded Reception, but he also said something very significant in his speech to the Saudis. He said, we will no longer lecture you. 
the way that previous American presidents had. To me and and to others uh, in the foreign policy world, they've looked at this as actually the end of American exceptionalism on the world stage, even while asserting our right to do whatever we want here at home. Well, and that was the complaint actually in the ni- in the 1950s was that you didn't want to have America cooperating with all these people, that the way foreign affairs really should be done was through business. You could have big businessmen who really understood what was best for the economy, what was best for a capitalist economy, take over foreign affairs, go into countries, not worry about labor laws, not worry about human rights, and that that, by turning the world over to businessmen who really knew what they were doing, we'd have a much more peaceful world than in in fact, we would if you let these, you know, foreign countries meddle with our affairs. Well, isn't it interesting? Aren't those the same people who were at least a, a core part of the uh, pre-war America First isolationist yes, movement? Yes, they were. Who then in the 50s opposed the United Nations? Yes, that's right. I love those historical connections, Susan. Lovely. Uh, Heather, Susan, let's jump way back before Trump, even before the United Nations. In 1919, after World War One. The United States was arguing about whether or not to enter the League of Nations. President Woodrow Wilson, of course, was advocating for the League of Nations. And Massachusetts Congressman Henry Cabot Lodge is most famous for opposing it. Here is Lodge in front of the United States Senate in 1919. I can never be anything else but an American, and I must think of the United States first. And when I think of the United States first, in an arrangement like this, I am thinking of what is best for the world. For if the United States fails, the best hopes of mankind fail with it. I have loved but one flag, and I cannot share that devotion and give affection to the mongrel banner invented for a league. Internationalism, illustrated by the Bolsheviks, and by the men to whom all countries are alike, provided they can make money out of them, is to me repulsive. National I must remain. This is a great moment in American history because it sets up this link between internationalism, the concept of one world dominance, and Bolshevism or communism. And it's a fascinating moment because you got to step back a minute and think about the fact that there is this sort of sense in America that Democrats are weak on military affairs, when in fact both World Wars One and World War Two were fought with Democratic presidents and in Vietnam. Place. And Vietnam, you could even make a case for Korea. Yep. And and so, what do you do with that? How do you figure out how does it, how do Democrats get this this pacifist? label attached to them. And it, it starts sort of starts in the 19th century. But this is the crucial moment right here, because what happens is, of course, that Woodrow Wilson does not want to go into World War One. He's a Democrat. He's president. Uh, and he doesn't want to go into World War One. And the real leader of the Republicans, who is Teddy Roosevelt, who is Henry Cabot Lodge's best friend, is constantly whipping Woodrow Wilson in the press and in books and everything, saying he's a wimp, he's a pacifist, he won't go fight. Woodrow Wilson goes and fights. Win, not personally, but he takes the country into war. They win World War One, And coming out of that Woodrow Wilson, who's a college professor, and there's great stories there I'll spare you with. Woodrow Wilson says, 
we got to make sure this never happens again. World War I was just a horrific bloodbath for years dragging on of people dying in trenches and in mud and an entire an entire generation wiped out. And we have to make sure this never happens again. And the, the way war, to do the that- The war to end all wars. The, the death toll is horrific. We got to make sure that doesn't happen. So he backs the League of Nations. Now think of the timing. The war ends right before the midterm elections of 1918, and the Republicans are in real trouble because Woodrow Wilson is really popular, hugely popular. He's like the messiah after World War I. And Woodrow Wilson, who is exhausted, makes a bad mistake. And what he does is they have fought that war as Americans. And before the 1918 election, he says, put Democrats in office in the 1918 election or we're going to lose this peace. And the Republicans pounce like little vipers and they say, that's it. He's making this a partisan war and he's trying to drag us into something. And this is why Henry Cabot Lodge suddenly becomes an isolationist and, and says, if we go through this League of Nations, we're going to end up being dragged into Bolshevism. In fact, you know, this is a made up issue for the 1918 midterm elections. And it works. You know, the that people are tired of the war, the 1918 elections go to the Republicans. And we've lived with this ever since, with that linkage between what he at the time identified as internationalism or one world government and the idea that it would bring communism to American shores. Yeah, a narrative that's fitted to this one moment, the convenience, if you will, political convenience of this one moment that lasts ever now since. a century. The thing about Trump, though, is that he... He has those elements, right? And clearly this has been a strain of republicanism ever since then. But listen to Henry Cabot Lodge and listen to Donald Trump. What's the difference? He's also a reality TV show star. Uh, and he's a, he's a cynical celebrity uh, who really does care about the branding of his tweets in many ways more than the impact of deterrence on whether we can have a conflict with North Korea or not. And, you know, the, the cynicism of this moment versus that moment is really different. You know, you could have had this debate play out with, with any number of Republican politicians, but it wouldn't be in this way. Yes, and that's a really important point because the difference between somebody like Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a career politician and believed in politics and believed in government and his policies not might not be something you or I would agree with, he believed in governance and he believed that was a profession. And that changes dramatically in America in the 1920s when business takes over the government and does a completely different thing. And I think you can say modern-day Republicans, certainly Republicans like Trump, are not politicians. As I've said all along, he's a salesman. He's not a politician. He does not believe in governance. He believes in salesmanship. That point that you're making, uh, that that Heather is making too about us, Susan, about um, this push and shove uh, between uh, isolationism, leave us alone, or America as the leader of a, an international order that will be in support of all peoples, back and forth. Uh, in some ways, an old song in America. You know, it's an old song, but I think Donald Trump is something new in the sense that he is also bringing populism to the mix of that. You know, the, these oligarchic Republican isolationist figures, correct me if I'm wrong, Heather, they were not really populist. In fact, they were kind of the antithesis 
of populace in some ways, right? Yep. And, you know, it, we've never had really in modern times uh, a populist figure like Trump who doesn't command the base of support from the establishment of his own party. In fact, is at odds with his own party. Great connection, Susan. Susan, this is why you get the big money. Uh, that's a <laughs> lovely... Heather, what do you think? Although I will point out that in the 1920s, one of the ways they drummed up support was through things like nativism, anti-immigrant sentiment. And of course, that's the period we get the rise of the KKK, the idea that we need to make America be isolated. This is when we get the rise of the concept of America first. But what you didn't have in those periods, you're dead right, is you did not have national figures deliberately embracing that strategy. They rode on it for sure, but they did not bring it into the White House. Right. Herbert Hoover was no uh, was no Donald Trump. No, no, he, no, no. Susan, Heather, stand by. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Well, Susan, let's dive into the last three presidents. We have Bill Clinton, the first president that served when the U.S. was the unchallenged world power after the end of the Cold War. Then you have President George W. Bush, who after 9-11 is remembered for war and attempted nation building in Iraq and Afghanistan, who says, standing on the rubble, essentially either you're with us or against us in this new global war on terror. And then you get Obama, uh, who pulls back and is criticized for wanting to lead from behind. That's certainly what he's attacked with. He certainly is a believer in the United States working in a cooperative way, though the lone leader, to build world order, to build constructs, security arrangements, trade alliances, the kind of things that bond nations together rather uh, than some of the things that ultimately drive us apart into destruction. And now, finally, Trump. He seems in some ways to have come out of nowhere with this American first uh, idea with the United Nations. But, of course, it's not so. What did the last three presidents not do that, in a way, left this opening for Trump? Well, look, I do think that you're right that there turns out to be, in some ways, much more in common between Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama than we thought. You know, we thought that. Obama and Bush were the polar opposites, but it turned out they were both operating within the same spectrum. The way I look at it is that they were all three of a generation. They were the post-Cold post War leaders of the United States and this, this unipolar superpower moment that we had with the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's now been a full generation. It's been 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So to me, this is what the Trump thing is about, you know, that basically we had three presidents of that era. They had different responses, obviously, to the challenges that the post 9-11 world brought. Uh, they saw the rise over the horizon of new competitors in Russia and China. I feel like what we're feeling is 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 real. It is the end of that era. I was just having this conversation before I came to this podcast, and I was having this conversation with uh, someone who is is a historian and a, a national security expert who said, we're never just going to go back 
to the way that it was on November 8th. 2016, that that era that Obama and those other two presidents represented, the door has now shut on that. I I agree with that. Look, the world caught up. They were going to catch up. And we're still first. (laughs) We're still the most powerful economically, militarily. But in some ways, it was the success of so much that America did, that the rest of the world started to imitate us more, be more like us, do things more like we did. Um, that in a way might have been seen as a victory. But, you know, there's something you said earlier, Susan, that echoes with me about hypocrisy. You know, I've been a foreign affairs reporter like you have. I've traveled around the world. And at one point, a friend of mine who was a former journalist who worked at the World Bank after traveling the world himself said something that really was telling He said more and more he sits with people in other nations, and he says, look, if you play your cards right, stick to your knitting, follow our playbook, you know, someday you'll be like us. You'll catch up. You'll have all the things that we have. But no time soon, I trust. And people would sit across the table and say, you're a hypocrite. Yes, you want us to do all these right things, but not too soon. Don't catch up too soon. Let America continue to be the center of all things, the be-all, the end-all. He was saying to me when he got back to Washington, he's saying, you know, the more I talk to them, the more I hear the voice of my son, who's 16 and has just finished reading Catcher in the Rye. And all over the house, he's using the word phony, just like Holden Caulfield does. He says, in some of these meetings, carrying forward the high ideals and pronouncements I do as an American, more and more I'm feeling phony. Trump speaks to that. There's no doubt. Well, I mean, I think this was already going on. Again, it's it's hard because Trump is such a dramatic example of it and, you know, sort of so out there in how he presents himself. But it's it's fair to say this unraveling was already occurring. And I think that is important for people to reflect upon. This was happening under Barack Obama, and it was happening all over the world. It's not an accident that you've seen the rise of right-wing populists in the countries of Eastern Europe a generation after the fall of communism, and they're thinking about what were the broken promises or the the over-inflated expectations that came with those freedoms a generation ago. And, you know, you have rising inequality and disillusion not just in the United States. And I think it's really important to say Trump may be an outlier in our politics in certain ways, but this is, in my view, a generational moment that is occurring in the West. Let's just square the circle a little bit as we finish. Uh, We've talked about this contradiction between Trump speaking as to sovereignty, the need for sovereignty, embrace sovereignty, which is really a song of nationalism. At the same time, even in the speech, he talks of alliances and people getting together, countries establishing certain standards of order. Uh, they seem contradictory, but, but I think that that's something we've talked about um, sort of uh, helps uh, unfold that equation. Sovereignty left behind Americans who Trump feels he speaks for, and I think that's the same in many nations, don't feel sovereign. Many Americans don't feel the the uplift of this sovereignty. Of course, America has all of this might, but they don't feel mighty at all. 
And in some ways, what Trump is talking about as to this reestablishment of sovereignty is to establish that sense of primacy, that sense of independence, that sense of agency among that community, his base of Americans who feel they've been left behind, just like citizens of, of the UK and other countries feel that the global order has left them behind and leaders are speaking directly to them and, as Trump said, acting as their voice, which is, I think, something that happened this week at the United Nations. That's right. And I think you're really smart to make that connection between sovereignty and the individual feeling of powerlessness or not feeling to be a sovereign in their own home or in their own country. I I think that's a really smart connection. Uh, Susan, um, it's a joy to talk to you always. Uh, You just, you edify us, you enlighten us, and just keep doing what you're doing, and we'll have you back. It's great to talk to you guys. It's so, you know, and I think that the element of history and that conversation, Heather, that was fascinating to hear uh, Henry Cabot Lodge's words in that debate that still echoes all these years later. It's astonishing, isn't it? And it's always a joy to have you here, Susan. Come back. (laughs) Thank you. Heather, a pleasure as always to chat with you today. It's great to be here, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FreakOutCarryOn. Visit our website at WBUR.org slash FreakOut. Our email address is FreakOutAndCarryOn at WBUR.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.